Hello and welcome to part two of my conversation with Matthew Barnett Howland. This is episode 110 of the Building Sustainability Podcast. I'm Jeffrey Hart and every fortnight join me as I talk to designers, builders, makers, dreamers and doers. Together we can explore the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. So we're going to dive straight back into part two of this conversation with Matthew. If you haven't heard part one, then definitely start there. Um, we are sat, we are talking about Cork House while sat on the sofas in Cork House. This conversation was in the making for quite a while. When I was researching the use of cork on my own house, Matthew's work kept popping up. Um, and so I was thrilled when he invited me to see Cork House in person and record the episode there. Right, that's it. Straight in. I'm back at the end. Enjoy Matthew Barnett Howland. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So it's yeah. this is going to be a drastic swerve back into yeah, of good. material. Good, about time. Um, <laughs> so I saw at um, the Waste Age exhibition. Yeah. Um, I saw there was a little video. I think it was it. I think it was something to do with this house. It was certainly Amarim. Mm. Um, but they showed a robotic arm. Oh, yeah, the machine thing, yeah. Like, like the. The sort of that's right ones that build cars that sort of yeah the Cooker robot yeah yeah that just whizzing round and yeah speed it up yeah oh, was it okay because I um when I used this stuff I could own I wanted to get they called it ship lamps I think was a product on the on the website that's right and I wanted that as a sort of stopping water tracking in mm. uh, but couldn't find anyone to sell it to me so I made my own. With a, a router table and spent mm, yeah. days putting it through, yeah. and it machines remarkably well, isn't it? Yeah, a router and how nice is it to work with? Yeah, and the you know the the granules that the little fine granules that come out were just you know compost. Yeah, 
That's right. Brilliant. Um, but yeah, how how much is there sort of an interlocking? I've, that's a sort of strange way into that question. Are these blocks sort of sculpted to be? They're more than just a slab. Yeah, machining. Yeah, good question. Feels quite odd to drag it back to. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, well, that's in a weird way. It's, it's not. <laughs> it's not unconnected. Okay. To that story, um, because um, in terms of this lovely material with this nice backstory, um, and in terms of preserving its nature um, until after the, you know, when it when it when it stops being a building again uh, in the future, it obviously relies upon um, disassembly mm. or. or relatively easy slash economic disassembly. And one of those, one of the key factors there obviously is not sticking things together yeah. with glue and mortar. And one of the ways of doing that obviously is through dry jointed uh, construction, a bit like dry stone wall or, or, or even there, yeah, or even the ancient cobbled um, tomb structures uh, that were made without um, glue or mortar. Um, and the way of achieving that, in this instance, in, at the same time as meeting contemporary building regulations, uh, was to use the, the digital technology, in that instance, the KUKA robot, to achieve that nice, snug, friction fit um, interlocking system. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's a tongue and groove system um, uh, with no offset in in the tool paths, so by which I mean that the block below is machined exactly as as the negative of the uh -huh. block above, or yeah, or vice versa, um, which gives you this really nice friction fit, um, which we did initially just through a router, yeah, you know, like you. There's quite a lot of hand tooling in, in the first couple of prototypes and so on, um, and it's a really nice fit. It kind of it almost sort of yes, it sort of. Yeah, it's sucks. It's nice. It's nice. Um, and what did that really give us in terms of? Um, I guess it gave. I guess it gives you just a nice, tight um, structural interlocking fit. Obviously, you don't want really want to wobble mm -hmm. um, built into it. Um, I don't think it really did much more than that in terms of airtight. So I mean, obviously, it will have contributed a bit to the airtightness. Um, but then if you're relying on a dry jointed system, there are always going to be places in the construction as a whole where that isn't a totally perfect friction fit. Yeah. Or interference fit is what they call it in the machine world. As as in, it's, so it's it's just touching enough to yeah. create a bit of friction. Yeah, there. yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it was a really lovely thing to work with. And we, I did most of the um, prototypes by hand, um, like you did, um, and then it got to the point where, where we were, although it sounds like a nice simple idea, blocks of cork equals wall mm -hmm. <laughs> or, or equals roof, um, that material simplicity actually ended up um, in order to function really as a proper piece of wall or, or, or roof, um, ended up quite complex geometry to each of the blocks. Um, with the tongue and the groove, and obviously you get corner blocks, half blocks for windows, 
um, eaves blocks and then the roof as it cools in I can't tell you how many block types that generates mm -hmm. um, and obviously offsetting creates quite a lot of complexity because obviously in the wall it's relatively straightforward which you could probably do on a router just push it through a spindle molder yeah. get an easy tongue and groove you know um, but when you start offsetting obviously your tongue and groove don't line up above and below of course yeah. um, and then corners <laughs> um, and then we had all these extra grooves for water management um, which I'll come back to in a minute because it's a, it, it, it is a red herring and was a red herring in the research um, anyway because the way I'm going to with this is uh, the complexity in those roof blocks you just wouldn't slash couldn't do by hand mm. with any level of accuracy or if you did it would take you four hours a block um, so the Bartlett has got relatively well very good um, uh, robotics department um, in the workshop there this was about again eight years ago now um, and so we the guy who runs the workshop there or used to run that uh, the be made um, which is the fabrication facility there, Peter Scully. He was really um, useful and helpful uh, in taking the, that hand analog technology into the digital world. Mm -hmm. um, then obviously then you're into tool paths and, you know, so whether it's, um, whether it's Rhino um, or um, SolidWorks uh, and how that connects into tool path software um, that's, you know, for the research, it was done on the KUKA robot using Rhino and Grasshopper um, to drive the tool paths. Uh, and that was good enough for the little test cabin we made, mm -hmm. uh, which proved was sort of proof of concept um, halfway through the research. And then we realized, and then in the next step up, um, we realized that that form of digital fabrication um, was one block at a time. Um, KUKA robots um, are not really ideal um, for making that sort of very accurate orthogonal geometry on that sort of scale. So we went to um, a five-axis um, CNC machine workshop called Buck Doodle in Suffolk. Um, and because the house is 1,300 blocks. Right. Um, and, you know, it just made sense to go more slightly more commercial with that and then he turned out to be a, a really interesting character who i'm still very good friends with and we're still working with him on the other court type projects but it's a hell of an undertaking for him because they're quite big you know because you're machining them on this side you've got quite big z-axis there aren't that many um workshops that do that scale of z-axis um on a, on a five axis cnc mm -hmm. most of it's done more with a, a scale of sort of uh, steel engineering and so on smaller counts smaller scale components um, and it was hugely messy and loads of dust and they had to get these mm. extraction systems on. Um, anyway, that's how we delivered the house. So he would make about 25, 30 blocks in a batch, deliver them here in a van um, while I was going around and uh, making sort of building at the house up course by course yeah. in a kind of Lego type way. Each course had a little diagram with block numbers. And I'd have to sort them out, you know, <laughs> and then set them up around the edge of the CLT slab, um, you know, with a big, with a big uh, 
scaffolding cover to keep the whole place dry. Yeah. And then it was really nice. So once you got into the swing of it, it was actually really, it was relatively straightforward. You lay all the blocks out, and then at the end of the day, you can just go around and, and they literally would just go 10, 15 seconds a block. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's lovely. Yeah. yeah. But, but obviously, I don't want to give you the wrong impression that it was. <laughs> But it was all... You were having a lovely time the whole yeah. time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so the machining, yeah, because it's about 18 metres long, the building, you know, and it's, you're relying upon the last block that goes in on each course has to be a um, double female, as it were. Uh-huh. Because you, you, know, you can't get that last block in, so it has to come from above. Mm-hmm. And that, that last, you know, if you're going to get an interference fit, you're asking the building to be half a millimetre accurate, over 18 metres or so. And occasionally it was great. Occasionally, <laughs> <laughs> occasionally it sort of slide in and you go, yeah. And then occasionally, oh man, here we go. And you get the old hand tools out and off you go. Right. Butchering it. And, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, how long did it actually take to, to build? Don't know really. We always, when I look back on it, I had another guy help me um, who lived on site um, and it took us, we think it took us about a year between the two of us if we were working full time yeah. every week. We reckon about a year for two people. Um, I guess, I mean, that's for a building of this size, that's it's quite efficient. Yeah, foundations, you know, services, yeah. finishes, it's all right. I suppose my house took. 18 months of just me. Yeah, so. but that's part. But if you condensed it all. Yeah. Yeah. But it didn't feel, it doesn't feel anything. And obviously the self-build was a huge part of it, a huge motivation, which, you know, that isn't something really that I talk that much about. But but that, yeah, as I said, going back to, you know, I'm, I like being physical and outdoors. And so that was a real motivation to do that. Well, not to go back into conventional practice. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Was the how so you said that the guy dropped off 25 blocks at a time? Yeah, how quick was he sort of producing them? Yeah, pretty quick. Where I had a Thames allowed me to use their site just here and had a hole in the fence, and so I stored them all in this big, you know. And often, obviously, the block you'd want, as you can imagine, is <laughs> <laughs> deep, deep down at the bottom of the pile. Yes, yeah, and they need to cover them up. And I had sort of huge tarpaulins, like you know, 20 meters long. Yeah, and that was always that was quite. Yeah, logistics, isn't it? Just logistics. Yeah. I mean, one of the, it was quite funny when you, because until you get to the eaves and you lock the whole structure together with this timber ladder at the eaves, which there is, a timber mm-hmm. grid, if you like, in plan, um, the house is pretty, it's a pretty movable feast, really, because there's no mortar or glue, you know? Mm. So it wants, to, you know, not wants to, but it can move longitudinally, laterally, diagonally, you know, when the wind blows, yeah. Yeah. Um, so there was an interesting phase where when I built the walls, nothing's holding it in place, the ladder goes on, and then just getting it, getting the walls into the millimetre perfect position so that the ladder, which is prefabricated as well, mm-hmm. would fit. And then once you've bolted and nailed and screwed all that down, then the house becomes a kind of thing, uh, a fixed structure. So all the, all the, all the beams and uh, ring beam, valley beams, um, CLT wardrobes, and stuff, they're all prefabricated in, um, 
Estonia. Uh-huh. Strangely. Um, just got a really good deal from someone. Um, so ordered and direct from the mill. Um, yeah, so that, that was that was an interesting discipline. Was all, everything uh, which I've not done before? You know, everything being drawn. So breaking the building down, I guess, from the architectural thing, breaking it down into components, mm-hmm. uh, and then sending those off to some workshop somewhere, whether it's the cork or the timber or the doors and windows, um, and understanding all those processes enough to send those drawings off as fabrication drawings. Mm. Um, and then getting them sent direct back to me, not to a warehouse or you know via a company or anything like that. Yeah, so as I say, again, most that materials out there. Um, that was that was a really lovely thing as well. Actually, that was a really nice discipline. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Doors and windows. They they were fantastic. Got a really fantastic joiner. Prototyped them with me. Because um, if you again, it won't come across this, but. When you when you open the, the, the they're a bit like a velfactor, so that the, the opening frame shuts onto the fixed frame. Uh-huh. So you don't get a double thickness or an offset. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's really hard to achieve if if the outside bit is also timber. The velfact do it by having the outside bit being aluminium. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, that was nice. So all the doors and windows are, are totally bespoke as well. <laughs> and that's quite something um, because, you know, just understanding, it makes you think a lot about, you know, when you're doing things from first principle about water and yeah. air pressure and mm-hmm. drainage and how it really works. And, and actually, the doors and windows are probably, when one of the RBA judges came, that's all, that was the thing she was most interested in. So, you know, um, yeah, she said, you should really think about those doors and windows. Yeah, never mind the cork stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of scalability. Yeah. And they are really successful. Yeah, they're, in, they're a coir, super stable, um, good longevity. Um, yeah, I think they're really, they're, those are probably the most successful things to come out of it in the, in the long term. <laughs> yeah. Oh, going back to right. So with the cork, that was interesting. Yes, we had all these extra grooves and things. Um, again, so it became like uh, what I was, what I, Oliver and I were looking at with the doors and windows in terms of understanding pressure and water. Um, we sort of looked at that in the, at the scale of the whole wall and roof in terms of how do you design a block system that that's dry jointed, so water's going to come in. No? Mm. You can't stop that. Yeah, it's going to come in through those joints. And how do you then control the water into grooves? Which yeah. vertical. Some of them which are vertical if it's on a perpendicular joint, the perp, and then that catch that water in a groove, take it down into a horizontal groove in the mm. block below. And then feed that out into a groove that exits. Yeah? So it's sort sort of, of a little internal gutter. A water management facade. Mm. Yeah. Ooh, that's fancy. Um, and, and actually, weirdly, although it, so the reason it doesn't work, and the reason it was a huge waste of time and effort and money, um, <laughs> probably about 10 grand's worth of machining down the drain, literally, actually. Um, <laughs> uh, it's because obviously cork's like a sponge, huh? This because it's reconstituted material, mm. so it's permeable. Right. So the water just comes. It's like it's like designing grooves in a sponge cake or something. It's pointless, <laughs> no? <laughs> if you pour a hose onto a sponge cake, it's wet. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't matter how many grooves you put in it. 
So we decide that system works if the material itself is impermeable. It's actually a very clever system. Yeah. If, if we had a technology that made magical, impermeable cork blocks using a um, water-resistant binder, and so the blocks yeah. were sort of big, yeah, the, the impermeable units, then it's a great system. Yeah. Which we really, which honestly, we really, <laughs> when we did it on the prototype, we got it's a double thing as well, double lock. So where the tongue fits into the groove in plan, you've got an opportunity at the front of that joint to catch the water. And then if the water somehow managed to get through to the back, yeah, we've got another one there that goes into this double groove in plan, and then it all feeds back out. Honestly, and we, and we were like, we did it, yeah. We we're like, come on, that's pretty bloody good. Come on, Olivina, we we're like high-fiving. <laughs> And then, and then, and then, and then we did the water testing. It came out of these grooves, and we're like, "Fuck, that's so clever, man!" <laughs> and then, over the space of sort of six months, while the prototype eventually started to leak, right? Because it was just a big sponge cake. Was this the the, the cabin? Yeah. Yeah. And we thought, oh, yeah, that's not that's not worked, is it? Um, and then we went back to how the cork is made. So when it comes out of the pressure cookers, it's this big steaming, it's a brilliant looking thing. I've got great videos of it. It's like a sort of, like a spaceship as it comes out there, there's smoke going everywhere. Mm-hmm. It smells amazing and heat. And, and it goes into this chamber and about 50 hollow needles get shoved into the top of it, which impregnate water deep into its heart. Of the, of the cooking block to stop it cooking. Otherwise, it keeps on cooking and burns. Aha, okay. Which is a disaster. Yeah. And as it does this, all the water comes piling out of the sides of the block, yeah? So we'd been to the factory, watch this happen, yeah? What does that tell you, though? Know? It tells you that the, block's imper- uh, the box is permeable, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so honestly, one day we went, hang on a minute, Oliver, remember that video? <laughs> got the video out <laughs> oh man anyway so then we had to reassess how those blocks performed um, and that they were not just breathable um, but also over a long period of time in the roof particularly where you're catching water mm. vertically on an inclined surface but eventually over a number of months that will come through unless you put some kind of jacket on the roof Right. The walls, I'm happy we know the walls will get like, the walls are like a brick wall. Yeah. That's what it's like. And it's like making a clay brick, you know, mm-hmm. like a Georgian house. If you made a, a roof out of cobbled clay bricks, eventually it would leak, you know? Like in all vaults around London that are brick built underneath roads, they're all soggy. Yes. Yeah, because over time that percolates through. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was a, that was explaining why uh, all that, super smart-ass uh, <laughs> channels and things. But it was, you know, anyway. So so the walls are just solid. Uh, I say just solid. Yeah, so they'll get wet about, we reckon we did some tests after that, about two or three inches into their depth. Uh-huh. And then we'll dry out. Yeah, because they haven't got any membranes in there. Mm. Or, yeah, you know, that's where the monolithic nature helps you out. Yeah. Like it would on a solid brick wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, so the wind blows and 
wind draws blows away that. dries it out. Um, and also, obviously, it's important that it's occupied like a brick house. And if you go into a brick house that hasn't been occupied for 10 years, mm. they're damp and mouldy, especially on north faces. You know, it's a much more um, living, interactive kind of relationship to, to the environment those buildings have. Yeah. Yes. Mm. You know, they do really, that whole concept of breathability and that often confuses people in terms of air tightness. Yes. Um, and in terms of um, permeability, you know, they're all slightly different concepts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We've we've talked about You've that quite a lot. That, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, what was I going to ask you then? I'm exhausted there, actually. Oh, sorry. <laughs> You're doing fantastic, by the way. This is great. <laughs> I think it was that stuff about death is finished me off. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you, you might get the first room. Yeah. <laughs> Hastened it. Yeah, assembly. So just going through this life cycle. So we did the cork, done the fabrication. We mustn't forget the transport mm. as a life cycle thing. Because, you know, it's a Portuguese material. Well, it's Mediterranean material. Yeah. So obviously going to have quite a lot of transport carbon emissions associated with it. Yes. And just to give you an idea, about half of the tonnage, uh, well, half of the, it was tonnage in the end um, of sequestered carbon in this, in this, in the in the fabric of the house, is offset in the transport. Right. Have you got sort of numbers for that? Ah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> no, is an acceptable answer. I think it was around thirty thousand kilograms. So they've got thirty tons. Right. So I guess around of, 15, of sequestered. Yeah. In the whole building. Mm. In the cork, yeah, and about fifteen tons in transport. I think. Right. We had the, we had a whole life carbon assessment done by Simon Sturgis. Um, you've probably come across, um, who now his organisation is called Targeting Zero. At the time, it was a carbon assessment business, um, which no longer exists. Um, and at the time, it was quite a long time ago. Remembers that twenty seventeen, so six years ago, maybe. Five, six years ago, we were having those assessments done. My knowledge wasn't what it is now, um, and the industry's probably wasn't, and we didn't massively interrogate it, but it was a whole life carbon assessment according to BSEN 15978, which is the RICS methodology, uh, also adopted by RBA and so on, um, and also relates to a European standard as well. Um, and, and that did show it was the lowest whole life carbon assessment that they'd ever assessed. Um, and particularly embodied carbon um, was very low, let's mm -hmm. say, uh, compared to the model reference projects that they were using at the time, and which obviously would be much, those reference projects would have significantly improved since then. Yes. Um, so we've got material origins, what, how it's made in the factory, then it's transported, we've got a lot of carbon, then it goes to the workshop in, in Suffolk, what doodle. Um, where it's machined, um, which obviously also uses embodied carbon. Mm -hmm. uh, then it's brought down here, more transport. Um, packaging, mm -hmm. which often isn't talked about. Yes, I've talked about it quite a lot You're recently. It, yeah, <laughs> okay. It's one of my, my bugbears. Bugbears, yeah. So that came on pallets, which I couldn't get anyone to take off my hands. At oh, really? the project. No, no oh. one interested. 50 pallets or something, maybe more. Um, wrapped in that cellophane that holds things together really beautifully in transport. Mm -hmm. But what do you do with that? Yeah. Um, 
one nice part of that is that the waste from the machining, Richard found a way of compressing it into briquettes, little elephant poos they look like. And then he uses that still, I think, to heat his massive workshops up there. In Brilliant. Yes. Brilliant for him. I've paid for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, sorry. Not only have I paid for it to buy the court, I then paid for him to machine it. And then he gets the heat his watch. Anyway. Um, he's still a good he's a very good friend as a result um, <laughs> um, so that's the packaging uh, and then the assembly process which as I say is a rather uh, that again was a very satisfying another pretty successful part of the thesis mm-hmm. um, in that it was generally speaking rather nice thing to build um Quite sort of caveman-y, primitive. Mm-hmm. Must, your tool kit for the day must have been pretty sort of... Hand tools, generally. Yeah. yeah nothing major. Maybe a chop saw. Uh, maybe electric planer. Um, a router. You know, the usuals, you know. And a, yeah. and a, and a general multi-tool for those bad moments when... <laughs> two when blocks are refusing to yeah. fit, yeah. yeah. And, and obviously, and then and then just a just a cordless drill, yeah. That, um, by and large, because um, everything is either done by friction, placed in position by hand, or it's mechanically fixed using bolts wherever mm-hmm. possible, and if not, then screws. So bolts for the doors and the windows. Those bolts I was describing earlier for the yep. natural structure, brass screws for the floorboards, furniture screwed together. Everything pops out. Everything's accessible. No hidden fixings. Um, roof is assembled without formwork, which is unusual. You know, so um, you know, vaulted structures generally you know, require um, false work. I see, yes. Yeah. Um, this was quite an interesting way of doing it, this kind of uh, form of construction, the corbel, the corbel, which obviously predates vaults and voussoirs and so on. Um, so as you build up three or four courses and it starts to come in board, as you walk around on that, uh, when you get to about the third or fourth course, up, obviously it starts to give. Mm. Obviously there's a limit to which point you might drop in. So that's why when you look up here, every fourth course, I see. you see a, a, a minor ring beam, we yeah. called it. It's about 150 by 50, so six by two on its side. Because um, obviously the problem isn't vertical load, yeah. it's lateral load with cork, because um, it's, 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 it's weak in that direction. Um, so that would stiffen it up, so it would geometrically would help you set the roof out. It would hold it sort of you know, in the right kind of dimension. Mm-hmm. So then the blocks would keep working as it were. Um, and yeah, I mean, you could walk around. So it's almost like built-in sacrificial... Scaff- um, um, Integrated scaffold. Yeah, integra- yeah, yeah. And then you build four more, another one, four more, and then the roof light, which is again is the timber frame that holds yeah. it true. And then you drop the roof lights on. And then so the roof lights, and the foundation, the screw pile foundations and the CLT floor, those three things are where I had help um, from a friendly local builder yeah. with, a, with a telehandler and a massive Polish bloke to help me 
lift things into place. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, just giant. Um, <laughs> so that otherwise it was just done, yeah, very light, light technology. And that, that was really lovely thing. Um, which again, don't think was totally thought through at the outset. Um, Did you, had you already sussed out the, um, the sort of integrated scaffolding on your test uh, field? That happened on the test one, you know, on the cabin. Again, that happened working, you know, partly through us working with the material and doing test structures, but also working with Arup, who mm -hmm. were fantastic. Um, brilliant, two brilliant engineers. Um, Arup, uh, who were timber specialists, uh, and they were great. They were part of the research team and part of the engineering team for the house itself. Mm -hmm. um, yes, yeah, so that was assembly. What else was there? Yeah, the only real challenge I said that during the assembly was 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 fixing the house into into its shape. When you move from the wall to the roof, it's a big moment. Um, I had to make a very elaborate clamping system with these quite Heath Robinson. Um, ratchet straps up, you know, like literally about 20 ratchet straps, about 30 meters long, going around <laughs> walls with, and had to make end clamps, yeah? Yeah. To, to, otherwise it would destroy the cork, you know, so these big reinforced timber end clamps. Mm -hmm. Quite a lovely set of things they were. Um, and he'd ratchet it up, so putting God knows how many tons of pressure through all the walls, longitudinally through the walls, if that makes sense. Yeah. To kind of get it to position. Yeah, and then then you could drop in the ring beam, and then life was good. Just yeah. drop in the ring beam. Yeah, that was that, <laughs> but that, that was really easy because then that was all prefab, so you just had you know. So it just had to be exactly. Yeah, and how it just screwed screwed. There were some there are some screwed down metal plates making the connections in there, mm -hmm. but again, those would be accessible. So the point about the false work um, is that, therefore, when you're when you're disassembling the building, you you know it's quite uneconomic to have to rebuild a load of false a load of temporary false work, which is what you would do. Um, for, a, for a vaulted building. So here, you, you go up, you take the roof light off, take down the blocks, take off that minor ring beam, unscrew them at the corners, only two screws each corner, take those off, then go work you all the way down, and you get to the eaves, you take off the six metal plates that are in the ring beam, um, which are now accessible, take those off, ring beams come back out as parts, you take the valley beams off, valley beams are the beams that run between the pyramids, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, and then the same for the walls down to the base, windows and doors pop out very easily. Like I say, six bolts, 10 minutes. Um, even these CLT wardrobes, these structural wardrobes, which is what the ladder beam is tied down to for the lateral loading. So these are working in that direction laterally. Mm -hmm. um, those you can see, so everything's expressed and accessible. So those undo. Um, floorboards unscrew. Again, the CLT panels unscrew, the lap jointed with, with the CLT screws. Um, they come out, lift, the, lift those out uh, of the Akoya ring beam around the edge, which is just a 300 by 100 beam with a ledger beam screwed into it, which the ledger beam is just an extra batten at the bottom of the beam that the CLT sits on through gravity. Um, so lift out the CLT, um, unbolt the sections of a coir ring beam which go from screw pile to screw pile so about 3.6 meters span each one um, so I don't know what that is let's call it 20 bits of beam um, and then and then and then the screw piles come out yeah yeah and then you and then you're left with a garden gone nothing 
gone, just left, left back to pure garden. Cork House was never here. And all those materials, in theory, have been relatively easy to recover mm-hmm. or reclaim, let's call it, is a more conventional word. So it's reclaimed. Now, whether those, whether those materials genuinely are uh, reusable is a, is a more complex question. Mm. Like, could you, as in, could you take them and build a structure elsewhere? Yeah, because that... um, the circular economy, one of the key words there, apart from the idea of the circle, is the word economy there. So is there really an economy of cork bricks out there? No, not unless you turn it into a scalable thing. And then yes. are, at what point does a system really become a platform across an industry? I mean, you know, the world's supposed to be a simple place, but we have Apple and Microsoft, you know, which don't talk very well to each other. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And actually, the best material for the circular economy is is, is as old as the hills, isn't it? Which is is a brick, Mm -hmm. you know, with lime mortar. What's not to like about that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> totally reusable everyone understands it it's it's in between a material and a product mm-hmm. it's an interesting thing isn't it and if it's lime mortar clean the mortar off I built a house about 30 years ago my first house for myself was, was, was made with reused bricks London stocks tragically at the time because I was an idiot I used uh, cement based mortar mm-hmm. which still most people use yeah so it couldn't be reused yeah, again. Yeah. We're doing a house at the moment that's made entirely with reused stone and brick from a demolished house on the site that we're reclaiming. Um, and that's possible because it's a Victorian house made with lime mortar. Um, and obviously there's, over time they'll probably degrade a bit and lose their arises and probably limit to how many times you can do that. Um, but, you know, and then there's a, lot of, there's a lot of problem. People have a lot of issues with the embodied carbon that goes into firing bricks, or at least the timber brigade do. Mm-hmm. Um, sly use of the word brigade there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. You know, it's fired, but it still goes back to the, it, you know, in a thousand years when that starts to break apart, that still goes back into a, a, a dust which I imagine... Uh, can go back into the pedosphere from you know from where, from where it came from you know mm-hmm. clay strata, um, but, it's, but it's got a lot. It's got a lot of building lifespans in that. Yeah, well, the interesting conversation there, isn't it? About we, 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 you were deconstructing the deconstructing. Building. So well, I think I've deconstructed it. Yeah. I, while you were doing that, I yeah. was sort of mentally wondering, uh, you know, how long it would take to sort of verbally deconstruct. Uh, you know, a conventional building. Yeah. Yeah. Well, could it, you? Well, exactly. There's so many. You get stuck, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. When you when you got your when you got your plaster skim on top of plasterboard with scrim tape. Yeah. And foil on the back of it with black screws fitted into a maybe metal aluminium metal stud or steel stud. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Yeah, so talk me through that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Cork and fire. Mm. But you've, there's these beautiful uh, sprinkler systems within your, your building, copper pipes. Yeah. Um, 
how, how flammable is cork? It's Euroclass E. Um, well, that's what we were dealing with at the time. I know now, since leaving the EU, we now have to talk in terms of UK fires, but at the time it was a European material with a European partner uh, and they were cross-platform. So we called it Euroclass E, which essentially means it's pretty rubbish. So A would be non-flammable. Yeah, concrete, right. for example. Yeah. Um, it's difficult because I don't like talking about materials, the fire performance of materials in isolation from how they perform in situ as a building. Yep. Because it is a complex interaction mm-hmm. mm, to do with compartmentation, escape routes, sprinkler systems... Yeah, spread of fire, um, fire integrity or, or structural performance mm-hmm. during fire. Um, so yeah, so it's complicated. But that's my so I think that's a really important thing to. to you know, we had a fire engineer on this that was Arab again. Mm-hmm. Um, so in order to meet building regulations with where this building sits in relation to the boundary and the layout of the house and the nature of the material and the nature of the fire suppression and detection system, it meets building mm-hmm. regulations. Yeah. Does that mean that cork is a sensible or easy material to use in relation to fire? Probably not. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Because it's, uh, I, I, we, I mentioned this earlier, I was at a trade show where mm. someone was selling cork and they said, of course, you know, cork is non-flammable. Uh, and I thought, that's, that's nonsense because I've been using offcuts in my wood burner to start my fires. Mm. I, I know mm. very well that's not true. So we did a fire test, a proper BRE fire test to the relevant BS during the research process for the roof, the performance of the roof, which is a um, roof classification, which is AA, AB, AC, and so on. Um, we had to achieve, I think, in AB. Anyway, we achieved it um, in terms of the spread of flame and the and the integrity um, and fire penetration, if you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, there was some charring, uh, as you'd expect, um, and we, you, in, over the course of the test, you lose. We lost about 60, 70 millimeters of the thickness of the material, but that's okay because it's very thick. Mm-hmm. Um, so it still worked as a structure, but that is meeting a very specific set of performance requirements in relation to regulations that relate to roofs, um, which is a certain temperature, a certain distance of the fire panel in the test from that surface how long it burns for. So when it comes to walls, we haven't, we didn't do, because I didn't need to fully understand or do the fire test for load-bearing walls. Mm-hmm. So in a single-story building, you need to understand how the roof performs, um, but you don't need to understand necessarily how the walls perform. And, and in terms of fire, you know, there are lots of routes out from this Anyway, and it's got sprinklers and it, and it meets necessary regulations through, through fire engineering. Um, you know, 
I'm pretty certain that the, well, I know that wall tests are, are, are more demanding, mm -hmm. um, as one would expect. Um, if you're going to start building multi-story buildings out of it, um, yeah, so it's, it's complicated. Yeah, yeah, but it's like you know, I know there's a there's all sorts of um, discussions, should we call them? going on across the industry about building in timber and mm. building in timber at height. Yes. Um, the magic 18 metres and 11 metres and so on. Um, but, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a combustible material, so, you know, proceed with caution. Mm -hmm. I think the same with tall buildings. Yes. <laughs> I'm not saying that, you know, one shouldn't, make tall buildings using timber, using CLT mass timber, but got to be sensible about it. The people I know that we worked with in Edinburgh originally who did some characterization of the material um, rather than the full BRE testing. I um, mean, you know, I watched some of their, uh, where they comment on some of the industry discussions going on. And, you know, they're, they're very, you know, when you listen to a fire engineers, they're, well, as you'd, as you'd hope, very sensible. Yes, um, yeah, and circumspect mm -hmm. um, about some of the, um, what should we say, claims that are made, some by by some parties in some situations, mm -hmm. um, as you say in trade shows or, yeah, just yeah, hot topic, <laughs> as it were. Yeah, it's a difficult one. I mean, then the question of building high in any material probably is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Never mind whether it's combustible material or not. Mm -hmm. Well, yes. I mean, yeah. You've still got a, you've still got people at height, haven't you? A long way from escape, let's call it. Mm. Unless it's unless, unless it's sustained play strategy, you've still got people you know a long way, and uh, yeah, I mean that's pretty tough stuff, isn't it? Yes, I don't think I'd want. The job of no specifying that no 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 that. nor do we no I'm not, I'm not sure I'd ever want to go there again I think the mid rise is a nice place to mm. hover in terms of one's interest architecturally for urban reasons and and so on yeah, yeah. Not, I'm not a massive fan of any high rise really so I suppose that makes my position on fire quite easy really yeah <laughs> don't do it <laughs> don't go high yeah insulation wise. Mm. Obviously, cork is mm. an insulator. Mm. Uh, it sounds like you made the wall thickness based on kind of the material yeah. thickness, sort of, and stability, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you how how much insulation do you have? In yeah, it's a, um, in the walls. We I think it's about point one. Okay. Yeah. And then does it change in the... Changes a bit in the roof because you've got slightly fatter and thinner yeah. moments in the profile. Mm. So it's about 0.13, I think. Okay. It's good, though. It's good. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a slightly... It's quite a lot of material. Yep. Um, so then you get to that, you know, it's that again going, is it more intelligent to use different materials for functions that they're really good at. Mm -hmm. Three or four materials, maybe one for structure, one for insulation. And of course, there's a, of course, there's a good argument for that. Yeah. Uh, it'd be idiotic if I didn't acknowledge that. Um, but 
there are some benefits in terms of building life cycle in using Certainly. a single monolithic material and making things simple. So that's what's interesting about the building life cycle as an approach, the whole life approach, as I call it. Um, again, it's really useful when you're teaching as well. Is it's a really good overarching framework for having an intelligent, nuanced conversation about buildings and where some decisions work really well mm-hmm. and maybe those decisions don't work so well in other places in the building life cycle. And it's no magic bullet. No one's out. I don't know of any system yet that nails every single thing. You know, mm. and it's brilliant in terms of performance and cost and scalability and disassemblable, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's where it's a really, I think that's a really um, useful framework for thinking about buildings and design process. Yeah. Yeah. Balanced, balanced decision making. Yeah. So I think just sort of uh, wrapping up, I guess. Yeah. Um, first of all, is there anything that you particularly feel like you want to to say? I'm particularly interested in the richness of the material, spatial, embodied experience that a building is, which is why I wanted to, to you to do this podcast in the building. Mm-hmm. That's what we yes, discussed, yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't want it to be another sort of press interaction. Press, but you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Um, an interaction with another external party um, that was in the abstract that became about sustainability or, or, any of the, or actually any of the ideas we've discussed, not in the context of the thing itself mm-hmm. and of the experience and of the yeah of what that is um, talking about ideas over zoom or somewhere else where it's talking about as a, as a as a body as a physical body in a physical space well yeah metaphysical space should we say because um, the building's sort of physical, but space is somehow metaphysical, isn't it? Um, the importance of having that conversation in here with the smell um, and the texture and, you know, the warmth mm. of it. And, yeah, and feeling the quality the, of light. Quality of light and feeling the, feeling the form of construction, even feeling the sequence of construction in those corbels and the load path, you know, the human being that made it. Yeah. That was important to me. So that, I guess that's all I was here, is that I've had some funny experiences of people writing about it or making judgments about it who haven't been here. Mm. I think that's a funny thing, isn't it? In a world where that increasingly obviously happens now, inevitably, that's not good or bad, it's just a fact. Yeah. Um, it's nice to bring it back sometimes just to that really simple embodied experience ending on moving forward what does what does the future look like uh in terms of the future is cork <laughs> what does the future <laughs> look it's all about the past Bill. <laughs> um yeah we've had lots of 
obviously over the last few years about yeah, scalability and what we're doing with Cork now and stuff. And it's sort of, I've sort of, yeah, as one would imagine, slightly moved on from that. Yeah. Although, well, into, into other materials and how they work and stone works and aluminium. I'm quite Catholic in that sense. Um, that's the other thing I think that the life cycle approach gives you in the um, thinking about the relationship between buildings, buildings as artifacts, uh, the layer of human systems um, that feeds into those buildings and then the layer of earth systems which feeds into the human system, thinking about it um, in those terms. What can be simplistic, slightly binary conversations you know, around certain materials at the moment mm -hmm. in the industry. Um, so, um, so, yeah, I think they call it materially agnostic. Okay. Mm. Um, That's nice. Just on this, you know, so that we're doing this in this, uh, we're just in that, it's press day today for, for, for Chelsea Flower Show next May, and we're doing a garden there for the National Autistic Society. Um, and obviously our involvement really is, 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 is around the, uh, the, the corkiness of it, yeah, and the sustainability. Mm -hmm. But also there are bits of reused stone in the project, there's aluminium, recycled aluminium, which is dyed with plants. Um, there's a coir, again, mechanically bolted, a coir frame system. The, there's a, a coir mechanically fixed boardwalk system. Um, so yeah, in terms of uh, renewable and non-renewable materials, as I say, I'm pretty agnostic. So for me, it's about developing an architecture now um, which responds to, to that broader understanding uh, of the relationship between natural ecosystems and what building life cycles, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, so, and obviously none of that would have come about, obviously, as I said, there isn't it, from 2013 without Cork House, yeah. Yeah. So that's the future of Cork House. It's definitely not about Cork. <laughs> <laughs> we, we diagram it. When I'm with Oliver, I said you, we write about it, but we also started diagramming a lot. So I like doing this sort of funny, sort of um, quite layered or um, inter, inter overlapping, interlocking circles and cycles. Mm -hmm. You know, and, we're, and then within that, they, they, they sit within a within a geographical context of local to the regional to the global. And they also have an element of deep time built into them, don't they? So, you know, some of those systems, like the, the biosphere, is probably around roughly human lifetime in terms of plants and trees and so on. Uh, but then stone is, you know, more millions of years, mm -hmm. isn't it? And then the soil is interesting. That has a time scale, isn't it? If you're making with mud or... Um, yeah, so just I think that's a really, you know, and there's no... And what's nice about it, there is no simple way of making an easy yeah. <laughs> decision about it. It's just a really lovely thing to sort of work with and understand. And, and then how those things are brought to those different materials and timescales and ecosystems out there in the hinterland of your thought, how they come together um, 
to form a physical object for 60 to 100 to 500 years. Um, you know, how, I mean, how rich is that? Uh, what a way to spend a day. <laughs> <laughs> deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So good. Big thanks go to Matthew for sparing the time to talk and for the depth and honesty he was willing to speak with. It was really, really appreciated. Um, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Check out the show notes for links featured in this episode. If this was your first episode, then make sure you subscribe. You've got 109 other episodes to listen to and make sure you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you've enjoyed this, then please do take two seconds to share the episode to your favorite social media. It's really appreciated. And the more people we can have listening, the more people are going to build with these beautiful bio-based materials. Let's collectively inspire really excellent change. Uh, a reminder to send in topics for the Christmas podcast. That I am happy for you to throw in anything for that. Yeah, yeah, all right, anything. Um, patron if you find this podcast useful or entertaining or something else uh, then please do consider supporting via the patron uh, the link is patreon.com forward slash building sustainability and you get yourself 12 hours of bonus content and if you want to support by five pounds or more or more uh, a month then uh, i will hand carve you a wooden spoon that you can eat your breakfast with so yes, patreon.com forward slash building sustainability. Um, and finally, if anyone is still listening, I'm actually going to be selling some of my wooden wares on my Instagram in hopefully the next few days. Um, I just need to get the time to photograph everything. So keep an eye out for that. Grab yourself a bit of wooden stuff. There's bowls and there's cups and there might be a couple of spoons. Not sure yet. Um, so that's it from me. Uh, I am wishing you all the very best. I hope that you're doing so, so well. And I look forward to speaking to you on the next episode. All the best. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.